Undoubtedly, there are times in your life, as there have been in mine, that are better felt than described. And certainly, as we read this book of Lamentation, which we only read a short snippet of today, we meet a man who tried to put into words what must have been almost impossible to put into words. Jeremiah's spoken lamentation has no doubt spoken in your life already, especially when you are going through circumstances that in some way mimic his. No one of us is going to escape it. Children, even if today you may be joyful about being young and healthy, and please enjoy that. That's what God gave it for. But we all have to be realistic too. We all have to think that the sky is not always going to be blue in my life and the water is not always going to be smooth in my life. There will be times coming to you, young children and young people. That is going to turn your world upside down. Uh, but don't be pessimistic. No, I'm not pessimistic. I told you already, enjoy the day that you're healthy and young. Go read the book of Ecclesiastes, and you'll see that Solomon is saying that repeatedly. But be realistic. And that's why it's good for us tonight to stretch our minds a little, to try to understand a little portion of Jeremiah's lamentation, this third chapter. Yeah, we're all going to have pain. Perhaps you are having pain. Maybe you live with sickness, or perhaps there's empty places next to you, or there are these heartaches that no one knows of, and maybe shocking things, and so recently also in your community that took place. And then the book of Psalms and the book of Lamentations and the book of Job are written especially for us to where God's voice is speaking to us in those ragged circumstances. And in one of those Psalms you find this, verse Psalm 94, that in the multitude of my thoughts within me, now those of you who have gone through trials like Jeremiah or less, you know the multitude of thoughts that just pop in your head that just keeps going like a constant flood of thoughts and the multitude of the thoughts. And you try to sort them all out and you try to deal with them. And then the poet says, and in the multitude of these thoughts, thy comforts delight my soul. Thy comforts. What do you think he means with that? Thy comforts. Those are the attributes, the glories, the excellencies of God, the glory of his wisdom, the glory of his holiness, the glory of his sovereignty, the glory of his love, and the glory of his justice, and all these together are the comforts that delighted his soul. Somehow it gave him, what, yeah, hope, perspective. Sense of peace, comfort. I mean, the psalm that we just sang, Asaph, 
right? You read at the beginning of that psalm, the man is just going down and down, and everything is questioned. He cannot even hold on to the comforts of God's attribute. Has God forgotten to be merciful? Is his mercy clean, gone forever? And he struggles even to hold on at that moment, but God held on to him and drew him out, and we have the beautiful psalm for our own personal instruction. And Psalm 73 and Job's, and then indeed, lamentation. Don't expect all answers tonight. Job never got them. Neither will we always get the answer we're looking for. At least not in this life. One said, well, God has a reason for allowing things to happen. You agree? God has a reason. God has a reason for everything. He's written the script of your and my life in detail, and for every part of that, he has a reason. That's what this poet says, or this author said. But then he added something. We may never understand his wisdom, but we must simply pray that we may trust him without understanding. He's bigger than me, much bigger than all of us together. We must expect not to understand him because we're just finite. He is infinite. The words of Jeremiah tonight are from verse chapter 3, and I want to focus in mostly on verse 32 and 33. Shall we read those words again? For though he caused grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. Just let's focus mostly on that. Of course, I can't ignore the context, but let's look at these verses mostly. And I've, I've titled these, the theme of this, The Mystery of Pain and Suffering. And two thoughts. Sent unwillingly. I'll have to explore that in order to support that. And secondly, sent lovingly. Yeah? The mystery of pain and suffering that we all have in our lives or will have or have had, it is sent unwillingly. The scripture here reveals. And yet it is sent lovingly. Jeremiah has authority to speak about suffering. He's not one of these ivory tower theologians that writes about things he doesn't know about. This man has gone through the mill. He read about it in the first part of the chapter. 
as he describes what he has experienced, and of course he just speaks also on behalf, not only of himself, but of all of the sufferings, sufferers in Jerusalem in the time of his life, and speaks really for a vast multitude of people who are going through some undescribable suffering. And yet, friends, before we look at that, the Bible clearly teaches us that God controls all the circumstances in our life. The scholars of the Bible tell us that the book of Job is probably the oldest book written in the Bible, written by a man who has recorded under the inspiration and guidance of the Spirit, of course, what went on in his life. And this book makes abundantly clear that God was causing the suffering in Job's life, and yet poor Job never knew that. God had a particular purpose behind what he's doing. And you hear Job asking, Lord, why is this happening to me? I have not been the bad guy down the street. I have been living nice. I've been living good and upright. Of course I'm not perfect, but we're not living like the wicked. And look at the wicked. They're living nice. And look at me, where I sit. And so Job has just gone through the agony of the turbulence, of the struggles, of trying to understand the God of providence leading it. Yeah, we know he began wonderful. God has given, God has taken, and blessed be the name of the Lord. But as we read through the book, you notice that Job also fails as he struggles. And what's the intriguing book thing about the book of Job? But Job never was told why. It happened. I'm sure you've observed that before or heard it before, but as God confronts Job, he also never confronted him about any sin, except Job felt at the end the most vile person on earth. And God only asked him questions about the things he could see, about the birds and the sky, and some things he couldn't see, of course, in nature, around him, in the universe. But just the natural things, not the hidden things behind all what happens. And so God left him with an unanswered question. So maybe you have been struggling as I have. Why do bad things happen? To good people. Now, good people, you know what I mean by good people, we're never all good, perfectly good. That's obvious with the praise. But good people who live good lives, upright, seek the walk well, uh, are not stealing and murdering and doing all that. And bad things happen to good people. I recommend, friends, you waste no time seeking an explanation on that question. Just open Genesis 3. It sounds real simple, but that is the answer. God said to our parents in the beginning of man's history, I have married suffering with sin. So if you choose sin, you suffer. We chose sin. We suffer. And that's therefore not such a big question. Why do we suffer? 
There's actually a bigger question I sent you home with today. Why don't you suffer more than what you do? I said, well, Pastor, I, I suffer so much. I understand. I'm not saying that to everyone personally, but just in general. We often struggle with the question of suffering. Why suffer? Well, we're all sin. It became really clear to me once when I was conversing with an older Chinese brother. And he, speaking to me, say, you people in the West, you Christians in the West, you got your definitions mixed up. You got it all wrong. So instantly, of course, I was a little bit, what did we and do we wrong? He says, he says to me, brother, what you call normal in the West, we call, we Christians in China, we call abnormal. And what you call abnormal we call normal. Can you help me understand, I ask? I don't get it. He says, ever since Genesis 3, suffering is normal. And when you have a day or a period in your life, you are not suffering, that is abnormal. Will you take it along? It changed my life, that conversation. I honestly tell you that. A good day is abnormal. There's a greater dilemma in the question, why are yet so many good things happening in my life, than the question, why are so many bad things happening in my life? The dilemma of pleasure and prosperity and peace is far greater than the dilemma of suffering and sorrow if we keep our eyes focused on how the Scripture sets out with the history of mankind. Created good, rebelled and married ourselves to sin and suffering. And yet, congregation, and this is where we want to get to in this first thought this evening, yet the whole of the Scripture reveals to us that the God who created us is not indifferent to our suffering. He's not indifferent with the conditions we created and that are repeated throughout the course of history. He is moved with compassion. Still. And the greatest proof of that was when he came into the flesh and walked through our world, intimately acquainted with the suffering of sin. That he didn't do, but it he took on him. And therefore the mystery of pain is 
this evening in our text. Though he caused grief, Jeremiah is admitting it. God causes grief. You notice in the first part of the chapter, I'm the man that's seen affliction. You didn't say the Babylonians have done this. The Assyrians have done that. My own countrymen have done this to me. No, he, 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 consistently, he caused grief. In Jeremiah's life, in your life, in my life. That is not coming out of the dust. This comes from him. Jeremiah says, for the Lord causes grief. Yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. He grieves us. He pains us. Pain is often a mystery, but... There is the mystery of pain is that there is far more gain in pain than we realize at first. Pain is a gift. Now that sounds really strange to say that. Pain is a gift? Pastor, pain is a gift? Did I hear that? Yes, you heard that. Pain is a gift. Why? Well, it's like a little red light that all of a sudden begins to blink on my dashboard. Oil light, you know. If that thing didn't blink, five minutes later my car would be blowing up. It's a gift, that little red light. That little alert. Something wrong here, stop the car. Pain is a gift. God is blinking a little red light. Or a big light, right? Symptoms and illness are not the same thing, friends. Symptoms and illness are not the same because the illness exists long before the symptoms come to the foreground. The symptoms are not the problem. What is underneath the symptoms is the problem. But you didn't know that until you felt the pain. And if you didn't know that pain, you may have never looked for the cure of the illness. So the symptom of pain can be the beginning of the cure when it alerts us something is wrong I need help Let's listen to our text again though he caused grief pain that pain is not the illness the loss you sustained is not a real problem Oh, it is a big problem, massive problem, devastating problem. There's a bigger problem underneath that. 
Yes, he causes the grief. Yes, he does. God is calling our attention to a problem that is existing. And I don't know exactly who said it anymore, but it's a wonderful quote. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. And we like those pleasures. And his voice is hardly discernible. He whispers. He speaks to us in our conscience, and we don't like that one. So we muffle it, or we deny it, or we do everything to silence it. And if you've done that as well, then he shouts to us in our pain to arouse us, to awaken us. And that's why the mystery of pain It are God's alarm sensors, as it were. Say, look, I'm calling your attention to a problem that needs your attention. My first thought this evening was the mystery of pain. It is sent unwillingly. Our text says that. Look at verse 32. For he does, we saw in verse 32, that he causes grief. Though he caused grief, it's not the end of it. And then in verse 33, for he does not afflict willingly. So he does cause the grief, he caused the affliction, but he doesn't do it willingly. He doesn't afflict or grieve willingly. In other words, it's sent unwillingly. Now, the word willingly in the Hebrew is literally from his heart. He doesn't send his affliction. He doesn't send us the pain. He doesn't send us this from the heart. The poet, the, the, the poet yes, Lamentation is a poem, says. It's not because he has a pleasure in hurting us. It's not because he delights to do that. Oh, he causes pain not from the heart. Not with an inner delight and joy. Fathers and mothers, if I would just give you one example, you'll understand my text. Your five-year-old, your ten-year-old, your fifteen-year-old, they're not behaving well. They're making wrong choices. They're disrespectful, whatever they've done. They're transgressing the law of God. And you, 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 you do what? Well, if you're a good parent, you take out the rod, whatever that means. And you afflict your child. You cause your child grief. But not from your heart. Not because you enjoy doing that. Not because you have a pleasure. Then you're a sadist when you have that. You do it with a heart that hurts. With a heart that grieves about your child. But you do it because... 
You do it unwillingly because. Well, he or she needs to feel that this is not the right thing to do and needs to repent and return and change. And so you cause pain, not from your heart, not willingly. You are almost forced by the behavior you want to correct. There's one exception. There's one exception. It pleased Jehovah to bruise his son. There, the scripture tells me, Father delighted in leading his son through that bruising journey to bring us the gospel of grace. Oh, the more you think about this, God, the more mysterious he becomes, isn't it? He doesn't want to hurt you, sinner, willingly. But he did do that with his own son in order to bring the ultimate healing that we sinners cannot bring ourselves. The mystery of pain. Send unwillingly. And so, congregation, friends, family, fathers, mothers, children, teenagers, When you consider now your grief, your pain, what you're going through, what you have gone through, or perhaps God is stocking up your mind for what you will have to face one of these days. Why does God cause this pain? Well, actually, the Scripture answers that a little bit later. Wherefore does, verse 39, Wherefore does a living man complain? Man for the punishment of his sins. Let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. And God causes pain. He does it because he wants you back. Closer. Returning on ways that are destructive to you, dishonoring to him, but destructive to you, is God so cares about you that he's willing to cause pain unwillingly. Now we know, of course, this is a way of speaking about God in a human way. That's obvious. That's... We have a fancy word for that, but I'll spare you that. But it's still the scripture here. God wants us to feel, I don't cause this affliction, trial, in your life from my heart. So let's then go to our second thought, not sent willingly, yet lovingly. 
for though he caused grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies, for he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. It's like God gives to Jeremiah as he ponders through all what has happened and as he is sitting in this pit, as he is struggling to to put it all together. You notice in the verse, uh, verse 21, this I recall to my mind. I'm sure it took a lot of effort. I'm sure it took a lot of effort to turn his eye away from all the destruction and all the suffering and all the crosses and all the pain and all what he was going through. And with prayer, undoubtedly, he, he was given to turn away his eye from, from all that and to recall to his mind, what did he call, recall to his mind? And he says, therefore have I hope. Therefore, in all this, this, this struggle and all this chaos and brokenness and all this destruction around me that are irreversible, humanly speaking, and I'm sure there are such who sit here tonight who are dealing with that, the irreversible, the never again, having to live life long with the empty place or with the cross or the burden, the brokenness. And therefore I have hope. Why? What, what, what is the cause of his hope? Well, you notice he says, it is of the Lord's mercy, sire, the mercies of God that, that were not consumed, that his compassions, they fail not. It doesn't look like it at the moment. It doesn't feel like it at the moment. But I know, I know in my heart, I know in my, in my understanding of this God that he is a God of mercy. He is a God of compassion. He is a God of feeling and caring. And, and we read in our text, right? Though he cause grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. He's like David here. Ziklag is one big ass. All destroyed kids, families, everybody captive, kidnapped. His soldiers standing around him ready to stone him. And then we read these words, and David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. It's like he's climbed out, as it were, and he clung to what he knew of God, and he remembered what he knew of God, and he encouraged his own mind by remembering. That's what Jeremiah did. That's what God enabled him to do again. That's what you need. This is what I need. Time and time and time again. That's why the Psalter I was saying we sang tonight, Psalter 277, Psalm 77. It's never an old psalm, as always fresh inspiration. Right? So his mercies. My second thought tonight was sent willingly, not willingly, yet lovingly. When God causes suffering, 
Is that loving? He knows it hurts. He knows what you go through. He knows the pain. He knows that. But he sees farther than today. He knows you will hurt more if he doesn't stop you now. You see? That's why he sends it lovingly. He doesn't seek your destruction. He seeks your salvation. He doesn't seek worse. He seeks better. But since you're not listening to the pleading of the voice of God through the preaching, since you don't listen to the whisper of his voice in your pleasures, since you don't listen to the voice of your conscience, he must, therefore, at times, speak louder. Not because he desires you to suffer. Not because he desires you to hurt. He desires that you search your ways and return to him. With an oath has he declared it. I have no desire in your death. That means I have no desire to live separate from you. Because death is separation. Though you chose it in paradise, and though you perpetuate it in your rebellion... I, the Lord, swear on my own name, I have no desire in that continuation of separation, but that you turn and return to me, and I will abundantly pardon, and I will do it again and again and again and again. And since you don't listen, I have to pinch you a little bit, or a lot of bit, but lovingly. The essence of our God is love. And Samuel Davies, in a brilliant sermon, expounds that every attribute of God is a revelation of the essence of his love. That's hard for us to grasp because it feels so harsh and it feels so painful and it feels so difficult and it feels so... Let's listen to our text. Though he cause grief, yet he will have compassion according to the multitude of his mercy. He doesn't afflict willingly, nor grieve children of men from his heart because he has a desire to afflict you. No. God, even in his fiercest suffering cause, is calling you to return to him lovingly. He said, that's impossible for me to understand. Friends, pray tonight that God would lead you farther and farther in the under- understanding. No, you'll never get there. But in learning to know more of him. The character of God is flawless. The character of God is full of compassion, mercy, holiness, justice even. Even that's a positive attribute. He will one day rise up to care for the injustice that is taking place and filling this world with cry and groans everywhere. And one day he will stand up. And then we will praise his justice. Every attribute in God. 
is in delight. His purpose in our lives is never to tease us, to grieve us, but to profit us, to bring us to healing, to bring us to repentance, to bring us away from our idle dreaming, to make us see what is real. And what is real is not what you see. I'm going to repeat it. He causes this pain to make us see, to make real what we see not. And what we see today is not real. Temporal, fleeting away. Soon your life is over here. And you end up in the place where every generation has ended up in the dust. That's not the real. The real is the hereafter, the eternal. And God wants to alert you to that. And that is lovingly, isn't it? He doesn't want us to keep on running into our destruction. He wants us to stop and turn. He wants us to throw away our idols. And he wants us to not look and stare and get ourselves infatuated with the temporal gifts as if they are going to deliver us and secure us in our future. No, he doesn't want us to keep ignoring his word. And so he calls us again and again. And he causes these trials and difficulties. And children of God, you say but. The Lord already took me and turned me. And the Lord already has given me this new life. And now again this affliction. And now again this depth of trial. And now again another. Why then? Because God seeks your spiritual growth. And our spiritual growth will never come until we are open new chapters and begin to listen for deeper in the Word of God. I think it's Luther who said that afflictions are the best commentary on the Holy Scriptures. It's in the fiery furnaces that you get the clearest revelations of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. So children of God, instead of saying, why, Lord, meet the new wave that will undoubtedly rise again. What now art thou going to teach me, Lord? So, I think Octavius Winslow put it, in one of his writings. The Apostle Paul also is on the same theme, isn't he? When we read Romans chapter 5, he says, Look, brethren, let's glory in tribulation. Glory in tribulation. Who of us does that? Glory in tribulation. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope and in hope that is then founded on the gospel doesn't make us ashamed. It is solid hope because it is in Christ. And how did Paul learn that? Wave after wave after wave after wave of affliction. 
So let's conclude. Send unwillingly, yet send lovingly. Tomorrow, Cambry has a surgery. And when the surgeon takes the little lancet and cuts into her flesh. Now, of course, she doesn't feel the pain because it's a painkiller. But when he cuts into that body, what is his aim? Healing. And when God takes up the knife, as it were, and cuts in your life, what's his aim? Healing. Samuel Rutherford, who wasn't spared the losses and the crosses, he says, why should I start at the plow of my Lord? That is pulling these deep furrows on my soul. Picture it, the plow pouring through his soul, making these deep ruts, these deep furrows. He says, I know that God is no idle farmer. He purposes a crop to grow in those furrows. That's the mystery of pain. Now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous. It's grievous. It's painful. It's searing. It's shattering. But the apostle writes, nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. When God blesses it, it brings a harvest richer than you would ever learn without the plow pulling through your life. David said, it is good for me to be afflicted. How many here cannot say, I have learned more from life's trials than from life's triumphs? And someone else says, it is the night of affliction that makes us finally see the stars of the promises of God which otherwise are hidden for our eyes. Now, these are experienced people. We're not dreaming this up ahead of time, have gone through it, looking back, they say, this was the prophet. Jeremiah is one of them. And over and over, the scriptures has borne out in the lives of millions that our deepest sufferings by the blessing of God have the potential to become your greatest blessings. Why? Because God is not primarily out on your comfort. God is primarily having your conformity to him in view. We're comfort seekers. We want comfort in this life. God says, no, this life the preparation for the real comfort in life and death that is to be united to Jesus Christ to follow him in life, in death, in suffering in joy perhaps you say well that's only true for the believers what about me I'm not so sure this is only true for the believers 
How many times has God not used the trials and the difficulties, even in people who are unregenerate, in the world, living in the world without God, and God strikes and has become a blessing to them. Early in this chapter, young people, it is good for a man that he bears yoke in his youth. Even when young as a child, you say, I have pain, I am suffering. Why do I have to? Oh, don't ask. You may ask, though. You may ask the why to God. Lord, teach me why thou art teaching, doing this. And teach me to learn from this. Just as you always ask your mom and dad, why is that green? And why is that there? Why is that there? So you may ask the Lord, Lord why art thou bringing this in my life? What are thou saying to me? What do I have to learn? Show me what I don't see. Teach me what I don't know. And then you will find out that even when you have your yoke in your youth, you may be benefited the rest of your journey in this short life. May God bless these words. Amen.